The ultimate vision is to be able to sate your curiosity about anything in the physical world at the moment at which you're looking at it. The secret of our success was that we knew nothing about music. Whenever we heard songs, we'd be like, what is that? And that's how we came up with the idea for Shazam. I blame my business partner because I'm hopeless, but he's even worse. He would hear the most popular songs and go, I have no clue. I'd love to find out. What if I could use my mobile phone to identify music? At one point, both augmented reality companies Shazam and Blipper were valued at north of $1 billion. They're wildly ambitious visions from founders with dreams to solve some of the more creative challenges in society. Of course, with Shazam, you'll be expecting to name that tune. But with Blipper, they were the first to enable you to use your phone camera into a new landscape to learn, activate and communicate in an augmented world long before Instagram or Snapchat. This live conversation brought two visionary founders together to ask the questions about where you go once you've got such a big vision, how do you start to put it into practice, and how do you start scaling up? At the time of recording, neither Jess was at Blipper nor Diraj still at Shazam, and since recording, the companies have followed different paths. Sadly, Blipper went into administration, though they did find a buyer and are currently in a new home applying the technology elsewhere. Meanwhile, with happier news, Shazam sold to Apple for £400 million. These are amazing examples of what a difference a year can make in startup land. So with that in mind, we hope you're ready to soak up more insights from people that have been there, got the battle scars, and are willing to share with you. Enjoy. Hello, thank you very much for coming this evening. In a moment, you'll be hearing from two of the most pioneering guests in the UK. They started uh, visionary companies in every single sense of the word. So without further ado, please welcome to the stage Jess Butcher from Blipper. Okay, so uh, yeah, the pre the pretext to uh, asking Jess how she is is she sent me a message this morning saying she's got tonsillitis and can't do it, um, and obviously I'm very persuasive, so um, no doesn't always mean no. Evidently. Excellent. Evidently. Be gentle. Good. Be gentle okay. with me. Okay, yeah, we'll try. Um, so, anyway, um, Jess Simpson, formerly known as Jess Butcher. Yes. Or the other way around. Which way do you... Uh, well, Jess Butcher professionally. My Jess... real name is Jess Simpson. Jess it's Simpson. It's not so good for Google rankings professionally uh, to have the same name as a Apparently that's B-list a... Uh, American Same reason singer. Prince changed his name to the artist. Yes, exactly. Bad for SEO. <laughs> Um, so you're kind of like uh, the artist formerly known as Prince with better hair and tonsillitis. Um, so uh, just covering some um, top-line info about Jess. So the, the format we're going to do today, um, both Jess and Diraj have their own episodes. Jess is a Series 1 guest and Diraj is a Series 2 guest. Um, the interviews are generally 45 minutes to an hour, um, and that's edited down to save waffling like this. And we're going to try and pack in um, some highlights into 30 minutes each. So... Instead of asking Jess these questions, I will give you the information and then we can crack on to the fascinating stuff. So Jess is the daughter of a politician. She's the middle child, but uh, growing up, always wanted to be her own boss. Post-uni, she went to work for a bunch of different startups and different businesses. She studied at Oxford, describes herself as not especially academic, having got a B at history A-level, but still got into study history at Oxford. So, okay. Also, somebody who doesn't take no as an answer, clearly. Um, she had a stint in Africa where she started her first business. Um, but like I say, because we don't have time to go through it all, um, we're going to have to just ask you yourself. So, can you please give us uh, an elevator pitch for Blipper? So, uh, the pitch has evolved. 
Um, oh, yeah, what was it originally? Exactly. What is it now? So the original pitch uh, when we started the business was about building the world's first augmented reality browser. Um, and we were looking to coin a new verb and behaviour for that, which was to blip, like tweeting or Googling, or which is to or shazamming, which is to look at the physical world and uh, unlock it. Um, the way in which that's transitioned is because I think we realised sort of halfway into our journey, sort of two, three years in, that rather than manually turning the world on piece by piece, um, in order to augment the world, you kind of needed to understand it. So that was when we transitioned into more of a computer vision company that was sort of turbocharged by AI and deep learning behind it. Um, and now we consider ourselves to be a technology company, a pure technology company with an ecosystem that provides the building blocks to clients to create their own augmented reality content, to access image recognition APIs, uh, and to do self-publishing for um, image recognition to AR content. So it's a whole ecosystem now. So now augmented reality and AR is like in, in everything that we use, and it's very, very common, which I'm sure is uh, probably a thorn in your side and a like pride almost, like a proud moment. It's awesome. I've just come from an event, actually, where I was invited to speak um, at a very, very different event to this, very formal, very suited and booted, um, that the mayor was hosting around AR and VR. And I was... He I was I was there as a as a um, a veteran of the AR industry, which was really really interesting because I do know a lot about this a lot. And but I did within six months of us starting the business because we were first to market with it. It was really interesting to uh, only six months into our journey to go. Hang on, you know we we know more about this than anyone else. We've done more campaigns. We've we've tried and failed at more things that we can actually talk very knowledgeably about it. And the space has evolved hugely. So back then. You would never hear about AR without the word gimmick also thrown in. You know, any trade article that was written about it said, oh, AR is just gimmicky. It's never going to take off. You know, people don't want to do this with their phone. Um, and, of course, that's entirely changed. And that's incredible. And there's a, many new entrants to the, to, the, um, to the scene as well, which is brilliant because we cannot create a visual browsing behavior by ourselves. We need as many other people selling spades and gold diggers and people creating really great content experiences for this to actually take off as a consumer behaviour because we're still some way from that. So, you know, for all the success and the lovely highlights that you've mentioned, we, we don't consider ourselves to have been successful until this has become a day-to-day -day behaviour. So that's moving on to uh, where you are today, but taking it back to, I think, is it 2011? Yes. So 2011, you're the pioneers in the area. What does that really mean? So... Uh, who has the idea? How does it start? Um, these ideas always have a funny story behind them. What's yours? Um, my own personal involvement was very serendipitous. So the idea started with my two co-founders, Risha and Omar, who were working together. They are a brilliant technologist and an incredible visionary around product and, and tech. And Omar was the one playing around with AR and image recognition technology and um, from talking to Rish, Rish had a sort of light bulb moment about how we could look at the physical world and connect it to the digital world. Um, the famous story is that they were discussing it and they were in a pub one night and they said, um, so Rish said to him, so what you're saying is I could look at this £20 note and effectively put my face over the Queen's. You know, I could, I could bring it to life with me on the, on the note. And then I was like, yeah, technically, practically, you could do that. And, of course, being the, the guy he was, he did it. He wanted to demonstrate it and prove it. 
Um, and it was after that that they approached me to say, what do you think about this? Um, I, I was a business developer and marketer. And as soon as I saw this tech, I was actually doing something else. I was I was looking to spin out my African startup into a broader aggregator of um, responsible tourism. Um, and that was that was my job at the time. Um, and then as soon as I saw this, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. This is going to actually change the way that we we look at the physical world and the way in which we interact it. Let me at it. Um, and it was a light bulb moment. And I realized how privileged I was to be invited to take a seat on that rocket at that time, because there was no mistake about it. That was the opportunity. Although with hindsight, I got lucky because anybody could have shown me this tech and I would have gone, that's awesome. Let me at it being a non techie. And it just so happens that the people that sold me that tech went on to remain the best technologists in this space. Um, and that, I think, was was good fortune on my part. Uh, you know, Rich and I have been great friends and sort of entrepreneurial collaborators in, 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 our, in our previous uh, work lives together. So I think he saw me as a natural collaborator to try and take this to market. What was it like in the first couple of years? So, you know, you've got this really geeky product. Um, you can't really explain it to anyone because it doesn't exist. Um, and yet your audience are advertisers and marketeers, realistically, and you've got the consumer adoption on one side, you've got the brands on the other side that don't even understand what a concept of augmented reality was. So what was, like, two questions. One was, how did you tackle that um, as a consumer uh, challenge? And secondly, what was the culture like in your company at this time of, like, severe challenges? Um well, I th it wasn't as hard as you might think because the, we were the first to market with it. And it is such a tangible, exciting, visual experience. And what we would do is we would never go into a pitch meeting unless we'd actually mocked up something in that client's brand off their packaging or off their advert. And you couldn't fail but to get a very physical, delighted response from people when we did that because this was the first time they'd seen you know, their own product come to life and grow wings in front of them and to see videos start to play off still images. Um, so that side of it was... Um, wasn't so hard. It was hard getting a foot in the door with a silly sounding named company um, and and then trying to get taken seriously because our proposition was to say, if you want this tech, you've got to put our silly apps name on your products or on your advertising. And when you've got brands like sort of Pepsi and Tesco, who obviously put a lot of um, store on you know, the, their, their credibility as brands. Why would they put a silly blipper, um, download a blipper app on this advertising? But the approach we took was to treat them almost like investors rather than clients. We really worked hard on selling the vision of where we were taking this technology. And we tried to make them feel like the people who discover the band before they're famous. Um, and that obviously only worked with certain types of clients. Um, and it, we never knew which job title that would be. It might be somebody quite junior. It might be the CMO. It might be a brand manager. It might be somebody who works on out of home or in their agency. But a certain mindset would love it. And they'd love to try and, you know, be associated with being the first to do this and being innovative. So we rather knowingly went after the innovation box ticking budget in the early days and that worked for us really, really well because um, everybody would try something and they didn't have a huge expectation, but they wanted to do it for PR purposes more than anything else. Can you share some, some of the, um, the growth in the company in every kind of way? So, like, you know, how many people in the first year? What was the makeup as a 
mostly been product and tech for the first couple, and then it's marketeers and salespeople, and how has that sort of changed over the last few years? Yeah, it was actually really back to front. Um, Rish, um, well, Omar and Steve, our, our fourth co-founder, the creative director, they were delivery for the first year, and they were working through the night to create all these demos and first client campaigns. Because what we what happened was something we didn't expect. We launched Blipper thinking we're going to be a technology business. We're going to tell people how the technology works, look at X, convert it into Y, cereal box to game, poster to 3D experience. Uh, you know, we're the technology player. You tell us what content you want to, to convert. And that didn't work. People ended up saying to us, well, you know, you built us this amazing demo when you came and showed us. Can you just do us all the creative and everything? And... And we kind of thought, well, okay, we'll do that. And the brilliant thing about that was that we became an agency, which wasn't our long-term gain, but it was a fantastic way of demonstrating what we thought the power and the potential of the tech was. So we had a big competitor in the market when we launched. It was an autonomy um, company called Erasma. And their tech was quite similar, but they, were, they empowered self-publishing from day one. So everybody was going onto their platform and slapping their TV ads on their press ads. And that was the execution that you'd see. So they had 20, 30 times more interactive things than we did in the market. But ours were cool. Ours were really fun and creative and told stories. They were experiences because we, we worked with the clients to think about their brand, what they were trying to achieve with their campaign, you know, who they were. And we built them. We told stories with their products and with their advertising. So we did many fewer campaigns, but the ones we did converted really, really well. And it was this other company that I think was partially responsible for this novelty you know, gimmick uh, effect that happened in the market that we really had to fight against by doing cool stuff and doing you know, a lot more of it. So when, like, fast-forwarding a few years, when um, Snapchat first came out, and that was the first, you know, proper consumer app that just went viral all based on the camera, realistically, what was the feeling at Blipper at the time? I mean, with hindsight, it sounds like you look at this all as one big supportive industry, but obviously when you're running a company, um, threats feel like threats. So what was the response? Um Actually, that wasn't that wasn't one that we saw as a threat. Very different technology. Um, you know, they are a social platform. You know, we never aspired to be a social platform, um, and we saw it only as a great way for consumers to realise that the camera has all of these powerful capabilities. So, I wouldn't see Snap as that. In the early days, we probably were watching a lot of the competition, but we were learning from them as much as they were learning from us, and we would see people copying what we were doing, and we always knew that the behaviour wasn't going to get out there unless there were more players in the market. So to us, we genuinely kind of thought, the more the merrier. We just want to make sure that we stay at the front tech-wise. We have the very best technology. We do what we do well. Um, and, you know, you can't worry too much about what's going on in the rest of the market. you just got to put your head down and, and stay true to your own vision. So we've been quite pragmatic, I guess, about the competitive landscape. So speaking of vision, which is, of course, uh, the word you probably use all the time at the company, um, can you take us through how the vision has changed? Because you now have these really grandiose um, ambitions, which, of course, you, you, know, uh, you can't really have them when you first start off in this kind of sense. But um, can you talk about some of the things you're, you're looking to apply the technology for in more detail? Because I think it might surprise 
uh, people to hear that. Yeah, I think the, the, the ultimate vision is to be able to sate your curiosity about anything in the physical world at the moment at which you're looking at it. So you know, at first we were a bit of an ad tech. You know, that was what we were doing. We were, you know, we, we had educational applications, but it was about turning physical things into other things. And that vision has got bigger and bolder and more expansive that using this image recognition computer vision technologies, you can now look at anything in the world. Um, and there's so much about the world that we're curious about that we can't articulate. And I think that's the unknown because people don't know they have this problem. But they do, because you can't Google something if you can't articulate the question, if you don't know the words to ask. So how do you, for example, Google a Rothko or a plant that you've never seen before or a breed of dog that's got slightly tufty ears and, you know, brown nose and or a sign that you can't read because it's in a foreign language with other characters. There's so much about the world around us that we're curious about that we cannot sate using words. And I think that's the huge power and potential and hope that we have for this technology is that we will be able to enable this sating of curiosity in the very moment at which it occurs. Um, so there are big, big questions that it could potentially answer. And there are other very important questions like, where can I buy that handbag? Or, um, you know, can I watch the trailer of that? Or who you is that person? I know I know them and I can't remember because I'm shit at names. It's Rich, he's a producer. Yeah. <laughs> he stays behind the camera, but yeah, Rich, it's fine. Um, so you, uh, you went in the other direction that I was going to very, you know, responsibly direct you in instead. So... I'll take you there. OK. I read that you're also interested in uh, solving the problem of illiteracy with uh, Blipper's application. Just as important as handbags, I'm not trying to discredit handbags, of yeah. course, but can you take us through some of those um, well, ambitions for the company? It's, uh, I mean, it, it's a theory that this technology could absolutely work on that. I think the way the business has evolved is that we're less in the business of actually doing that content building ourselves now, whereas we were five years ago. We want to kind of feed the market and explain that, you know, that you don't need to be literate to potentially unlock and understand more about the physical world. So, I mean, even for visually impaired, if you can imagine that somebody could harness this technology within glasses and, um, you know, turn their face in the direction of something and, and have uh, a commentary as to what they're seeing, all of these um, potential applications are hugely, hugely powerful. And we need partners and we've created all the building blocks and tools that will enable other people to help us deliver those sorts of solutions. We're trying to feed the imagination by explaining the power and potential and hope that there'll be not-for-profits or um, other institutions that can get involved and help us to build those sorts of applications. So when you see stuff like Google Glass come to market and then die, what, what is your perspective? Like, you know, in, in augmented reality as a space, as a consumable, what, what does that what, com what conversations come up in Blipper when that happens? We knew, we knew that wasn't the one. Um, we knew at the time. Rish had them and walked around with them and looked like a Charlie, like everybody else back then. Um, but we knew it was a stepping stone technology. I do believe face-mounted glasses and recognition are absolutely coming. They've just got to get smarter, better, need to not burn your temple, need to you know, have a, um, a slightly more stylish uh, look, but also much... Uh, better processing power. I think that was that was always the image, the, the the challenge. We're excited about it, but we're not waiting for it because we believe the phone is absolutely capable of this. And if you were to ask me personally on this issue, I kind of do think that the technology should be 
an on-request technology and not necessarily in-your-face technology. I think, you know, you should be able to fire it up as and when you need it rather than it coming up in an unwanted way. You know, the whole minority report scenario that we were often compared with when we started of the sort of advertising. It is a great, it is a great film, but I, I don't want those messages coming up in my peripheral. I want to be able to request that information as and when the curiosity hits me. And I think that's uh, much more powerful. And I think, you know, responsible technology, because I think we're having to correct these things in so many different texts now, retrospectively, you know, all the unforeseen circumstances of algorithms taking you down the rabbit hole and you know, the echo chambers and the trolling and the nastiness that's now being seen online and the electoral uh, implications of, of what it does. You know, all of these technologies are now scrambling to sort of correct that. I think with GDPR in Europe, you don't have to worry about it. You'll probably have to find your own market in America because no one will be able to permissively access any of that data anyway. Um, so just uh, coming back to, uh, you know, road mapping in your company. I mean, that must be a really interesting process. Like when you when your responsibility as an organization is to create tech that enables you to turn anything in the real world into information, how on earth do you roadmap that? Do you, do you go like, look, there's consumables, wearables, we could build the wearables and supply our tech, we could um, solve real world problems for NGOs. We could, I mean, there's so much stuff you could do. How on earth do you pick? Yeah, very luckily and happily, I'm not involved in our technology roadmap. Next question. <laughs> but it is a challenge because there's so much that we can do. I think uh, the, the simple answer would be it's slightly technology-led. So there are some verticals, for example, that are much easier to recognise than others. Um, so we prioritise according to what we think will be a great USP for the user and, and the technology that isn't too too challenging or doesn't have a ridiculous timeline to take to market. Um, and then, you know, work along that those two parallels, basically, in terms of how we roll things out. So on the back of, um, obviously, last week, it was uh, International Women's Day and also Mother's Day. So mm -hmm. happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you. Um, you're a mother of three. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage the workload? Are you one of those super mums that, you know, has a kid, goes to work the next day and just pretends like nothing happened? Or do you actually take some time and... So that's changed. So I've had three children in the last four and a half years. Um, with my first, I went back about two months after he was born. We were very much on that steepest growth trajectory with Blipper. I didn't want to miss a moment. And um, I, I don't regret that. It was the right decision for me at the time. With my second, I took longer. And with my third, I made the decision to actually sort of step out of my C-level position within the business and into more of a advisory non-exec role that didn't involve line management so that I could actually appreciate this very special and unique stage of life, which I had a sort of blinding revelation that I was really in danger of missing out on. What's um, his name? Sorry? What's his name? Uh, Joe's my youngest. Okay, so Joe, if you're listening, you're the favourite. <laughs> um, Do you know what though? It was actually more the older two that triggered that decision because I re babies are actually quite boring. They don't do very much. Um, whereas when they get older and they start to talk and their personalities come out, I realised that you know things were changing so so quickly, and I had a bit of a uh, you know a personal a very personal year which did influence a lot of how I thought about my work-life balance in that we we very sadly lost two women very close to us who were um, a similar age to myself and it really crystallized what's important in life and I realized that 
I was taking for granted quite how fortunate we were as a family, how blessed we were with the happy marriage that we have, the health uh, and happiness of our hilarious, gorgeous, infuriating, exhausting children. And that I was going to miss these years. And I, I, I kind of thought I did have a, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be traveling all over the world anymore. You know, I'm very, I, w- I was also lucky that the business had got to a stage where I didn't need to be in it as actively. I think I also recognize a few things that sort of collided around that time about two years ago. I also recognize that there are better people than me at the various areas that were under my remit. Um, And so all these things coalesce to make it actually quite an easy decision for me to say, well, actually, I'll quite happily lean out for a little bit to use the uh, sort of trendy, trendy term, because I want to get this balance in my life and I'm very much enjoying it. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Coming on to the topic then, back to it being International Women's Day, you know, what is your um, stance on um, on this topic? It's hotly debated, obviously. You know, there's two main things, interestingly. Number one, um, women are underrepresented, uh, underrepresented in technology. Um, a lot of that has to do with a lack of um, education in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and maths. But the other side of it is, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of zeitgeist conversation and whether or not you think it's true. Um, that women are underrepresented, I need to learn how to say that word, um, in entrepreneurship. So they don't start enough companies. Yeah. You're a woman in technology and yeah. you're an entrepreneur. You've built a tech company worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Talk us through what your position is on that, 
on that topic? Yeah, so I've, I've obviously been part of the diversity debate in those two fields now for, well, since, since I started. Um, and I talk at a lot of conferences about trying to get more women into STEM, more, more women into entrepreneurialism, about the funding gap, about um, uh, the, the risk aversion that we see uh, within women. And I was at a conference about six months ago that I'd actually taken my mum to, interestingly. She never hears me speak. And she was there and I was talking about how tough it was to be a woman in tech and, you know, to be in this minority. And afterwards, she just said to me, really, have you found it hard? And it triggered this whole thought process where I started to evaluate exactly where I stand on the feminism diversity angle. Because you know what? It's only been an advantage to me. I have actually not um, experienced any um, disadvantage, in fact, only advantage um, since starting the, the Blipper business. You know, I've been eligible for many more awards than my co-founders. I get invited onto more panels, um, onto, uh, I get more media and press. And I stand out in a room. And as somebody doing business development and communications, that's only been an advantage. And I've taken all of those advantages. But I've started to get a little bit um, resentful of the implication, which I occasionally hear is like, well, you know, that's because you're a woman. You know, the positive discrimination thing now is, is starting to annoy me. And I have... Also, just started to read a lot more about the debate, and I kind of think that there's a danger within the debate right now that we're over-egging this sense of um, misogyny. You know, we live in this misogynistic, patriarchal society, and I've never experienced that. I don't for a moment deny that that exists. It, it does exist, and it is real. But I don't believe it's as pervasive as, you know, the, the, the sort of modern feminist line would have you believe. And more importantly, I think it's... To create that impression is damaging to younger women as they're starting their careers, to start their careers off in a way that they assume that they're going to be discriminated against before they even get started. So you think the dialogue is kind of taking people to that mindset? Well, I think it can be self-fulfilling, and that's what worries me. I do a lot of mentoring with, uh, with women, and one thing I do know to be true is that there is a confidence gap. There is more of a tendency towards the imposter syndrome. You know, we want to do things more um, perfectly. You know, we, we're less willing to stand up and say we, we've got all the answers until we feel we really have. You know, there's a tendency to want to do things um, perfectly and not mess as messily. Um, and I think we exacerbate that by also then telling them that, you know, they're, they're at a disadvantage before they even get started in their careers. And I think, frankly, my gender is the least interesting thing about me. And I don't have a lot of time for people that would use their gender in one of the top five adjectives to des describe themselves. Because I know we're, as individuals, we all have a huge amount more in common with individuals who share our values, our outlook, you know, our socioeconomic background actually than we do with anyone because we share a, a chromosomal similarity and I just don't know that identity politics is moving in a healthy direction and that's what I've started to I'm, I'm in the process of sort of educating myself around this and doing a lot of reading and thinking about it because I think we need to have some proper discussions and it needs to move back to gender equality and not just about female um, uh, discrimination uh, and harassment, you know, things like Me Too, very valid, 
fantastic that we're drawing attention to things like inappropriate behaviour, but it's having really unwelcome byproducts. So the number of men now willing to mentor women has um, has gone down. Five times as many men now are less likely to mentor women, according to the research that Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In Foundation did, because they're nervous about the position that it might put them in and, and you know their attentions being misconstrued. That is not a good thing. You know, we're, we're in sectors where there are fewer women. We need male mentoring. All the opportunities I've had in my life have been because of the men around me. You know, my, my father, who believed in me, my incredible husband, my, my bosses and mentors, my business partners. You know, just don't buy into this misogynistic line. And I think we really need to work together. I don't think that, you know, putting us up against each other is doing anyone any favours. On that topic, though, interestingly, you say you do a lot of mentoring. Have you considered mentoring young guys? Absolutely, do. Yeah. I absolutely do. I do both. Um, in fact, I've never, I've never just done female mentoring schemes. Um, you know, I, I take, I, I, I go to businesses that appeal, and probably I've done more with guys than I have with girls. But I've got enough of a, a spread now to be able to draw some generalizations as to, you know, my mentoring uh, sessions with women tend to be more like coaching sessions, and my mentoring sessions with men. They come to me with like 23 questions about technology and, and different things. Whereas, you know, yeah, so that, it's really, really interesting. And I think, you know, female role models do have a huge impact on women younger in their career. So I absolutely believe in that as well. I do think we need more women role models of every shape and size. But I think the biggest challenge is socioeconomic diversity. And that's not really being discussed. All the oxygen is being taken out of the debate around gender. And yet... People hire in their own background, male or female, from a similar background, similar town, similar family life, you know, similar education, and that's what's not good. And I think that um, there's, you, they, there's all this evidence that says that the more diverse a company, the more um, successful a business. And it's gender diversity that's quoted there. But I actually think it's correlation, not causation, because I think where there's more women, there's more diversity generally of output and of, of type of thinking, you know, introverts, extroverts, you know, uh, different sexualities, different inter, uh, international uh, identities. And I, I suspect it's correlation, but the evidence is very hard to see data-wise. So, I mean, to summarise your point, is basically pushing for equality, but not um, over-egging one side or the other, because that just creates unnatural balance. Also, the biggest way. power anyone has in life is choice. And I think women should be free to choose the sectors and areas that they want to go into. And what's interesting from the research that I've read is that the more egalitarian a society, for example, in Scandinavia, uh, where there's much, much better paternity leave and maternity regulations and childcare, low-cost childcare, there's a much more level playing field. And what you, you're seeing over there is that the differences between those career types that men and women choose is even more stark. You know, there's fewer women going into STEM there and if we want 50-50 balance, then we've got to say, well, fewer women teachers, fewer women doctors, fewer women vets. You know, it's, are we really going to do that? Of course we're not. It's, you know, but it's, it can't be looked at in isolation. It's got, there's a whole spread of, of sort of gender statistics. And should there be more women refuse collectors and more in the army and you know, in all of the most dangerous careers in the world, in 99% of work deaths are male, should we be arguing for more women there? You know, it's... It, it, it's got to be looked at as a holistic whole and not as a elite career professional um, female um, small myopic view. I read a really interesting view um, recently on the topic, which was around female entrepreneurs. 
and why there aren't more. And someone was taking a pretty similar stance to you, which is that question winds them up a lot. And, uh, you know, you can't just ask a broad question like that. And actually, one of the reasons is because women tend to make a lot more logical choices. So it's the same question as asking, why aren't there more women inside this casino? Um, it's because women aren't idiots. Men are. They'll gamble <laughs> their money away. And entrepreneurship is one of the worst career choices statistically you can make because it's basically the only one where you're most likely to fail. Whereas everything else, you take little steps up, etc. So well, all of these so-called power positions are incredibly masochistic. You know, politics, um, mm. CEO, board level, zero work-life balance, you know, huge amounts of politics, huge amounts of stress. Um, and you know, I, I do think we need more women in there. I'm absolutely not saying that. But I, my priority would be on choice, not on you know, forcing, you know, the, the, and certainly not on quotas. I don't think that's a healthy way to go at all. So coming yeah. back to... Um, big debate. Big, it is a big, big debate. And I'm sure, got me off on I'm one, sure it's part some questions but, um, and potentially some disagreements, but I'm, I'm sure. sure you'll be um, familiar with that. So... Um, can you give us some um, idea of what's, just coming back to Blipper, can you give us some idea of what's, um, what's on the horizon? No. Okay, well, I didn't <laughs> want to know anyway. Um, is anyone else interested? Doesn't matter the then. Information is okay. confidential. Excellent. More well, of the same. Want... I can answer it. It's more of the same. We need to recognise more of the world. We need to do it with greater reliability. We need to do it with more partners that are getting this behaviour out there. Um, and we need to do it generating more revenues. Fair enough. So if you can't talk specifically about that, what you can talk about is um, some of the ups and downs. So to sort of close out on um, your segment, can you share some of the, I mean, obviously um, with Blipper, there's been a lot of high profile, um, well, for starters, when you were the only people in the space, I mean, you know, that must have been extremely exciting and uh, must have been amazing going to work every day and that kind of feeling. Um, but I like to imagine that um, potentially when some of the threats came out, it didn't all feel rosy. And what were some of the highs and lows? Can you share, have there been any sort of really tough moments for you personally in the journey? Certainly, it was never about competitors. The highest, the, the lows for me have always been people politics. Um, and that's, that, that's something I've never personally managed well. I feel huge amounts of stress if you need to have difficult conversations with people that you're managing, if you need to get rid of people, if I disagree with my business partners, you know, and I, you know, that's, I properly have sleepless nights before those conversations have them going round and round in my head a huge amount. And that is part and parcel of being the boss. Um, and I was very lucky to have a husband that would do this sort of counselling, coaching with me in all of those scenarios to help me with that. Um, so those are definitely the lows. Um, also, to be perfectly honest, the, 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 this decision that I've talked about of sort of moving into a non-sea level role within the business was a hard decision to make because I felt like I should stay in the front seat. It was incumbent on me. You know, I was this female role model. You know, was I giving up some of my power for... Um, you know, there was just so much conflict in my mind around that and it was, it was difficult. I don't regret it at all now but it was a painful decision to make and I had a lot of people say to me don't do it you'll never you know you'll never be able to 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 get back in but you know I have other interests in my life and and now I have this I hate the phrase but more of this sort of portfolio approach to my career with the the coaching and mentoring and consultancy advisory board work that I'm doing with other companies and I'm good at startup that's where I add value you know I, I see 
people respond in such a positive light bulb way when I'm talking to them about their ideas and helping to shape the direction they're going in that now I don't have any regrets, but it was definitely a painful experience to go through. I mean, it's a very famous, um, you know, problem, isn't it? That you're a founder, not a CEO or a COO. Those aren't necessarily things you feel like you can do, but starting something, getting it off the ground, being a jack of all trades for a period of time, that's that's the skill. It's very common. And the more I, I've looked into it and, you know, there are very few CEO founders. You know, you can count them on two hands because they stand out, the Musks and Zuckerbergs and Gateses and Jobs of this world. Because I do think there's a very different personality trait that, that, that happens there. But it's something that I'm absolutely observing in our CEO. You know, and that's been a, a, an absolute joy and pleasure to watch as well. And it's, you know, he has been one of the greatest mentors to me. And I've learned so much from the scale of his ambition. I think without him, you know, I wouldn't have been involved in a in a story of this kind because he was always having that three years out, five years out vision, whereas I would have been complacent with things at a, an earlier stage. And I would just, I would constantly think, really? You think, and he would just say, we don't need to be at that conference anymore. We don't need to talk to that journalist. You know, they're wasting your time. Stop it. You know, that, that person isn't good enough. You know, we need this person. And I, I, he was always pulling me up behind him. And I learned so much from him that I think I will take to another startup in due course because I do fear that might be in my future, much to my husband's uh, fear and terror. So, um, but Joe will be seeing more of you specifically, just not the other <laughs> sure two. Um, so, uh, the final final thing before we get Diraj to the stage, um, can you, putting you on the spot, can you share a piece of advice with um, listeners and with the audience, please? Something valuable and insightful that they'll remember forever that was better than anything they've ever heard before. Go. Thanks, Dan. So, here's a couple. One is... Um, the board of advisors thing, which is a personal board of advisors. I think that is a very, very important thing that I learned and have built around me. And it's distinct from your business. It's about you and where you are in your journey and finding people who can offer emotional as well as practical and logistical support for where you're going. And that can be 10 people, 15 people, a, one coffee a year to somebody that you see more regularly. So I, what, I, friends that you're really vulnerable two that hold you to account some some can be very practical and logistical and others can be more like shrinks basically that have been on there the right that i am on the right couch um but i also think there's a huge importance to karma in entrepreneurial uh, life and i've watched this in other people and the challenge I think you often have when you're starting up a business is you're incredibly myopically focused on your business you have no time for anything and I think investing sort of 5% of your time to putting your head up, looking at what's going on around you and connecting people for no better reason than it builds your network and it will come back. You know, you will get benefit from that. And a lot of the emails that leave my inbox now are for no benefit other than I saw this, I thought of you, you two should talk. Um, and it, I, I know it's something that you believe because I, I see you do it quite a lot. And it's so important. Um, and I think that's what keeps this community going. Um, and it's what Founders is all about. It's um, uh, karma goes a very, very long way. Beautiful. Well said. Um, OK, so thank you very much to Jess. You can listen to her full 
interview, if you wish. Uh, she only gave away half the nuggets of wisdom, I promise, um, in series one. Um, and can we welcome to the stage Diraj from Shazam with a round of applause? <laughs> Okay, so Diraj, you're now officially just as shrink. What, what, do you, what do you have to say to her, for starters? Karma, yes, that sounds... Uh, you, you were very calm uh, here. I'm much more nervous <laughs> with Dan being on the couch, so... Okay, so um, I'm going to just... The same again. I'm going to um, start off with a very quick summary of, um, of Diraj and Shazam's best uh, attributes. Well, that'll be for you to decide, I suppose. Um, so we like to think of uh, these kind of interviews as off the record to some respect, but Shazam's put more songs on the record than pretty much anyone else in the world. So they were created in, um, is it technically 1999? Yes. Yeah, okay. Technically, we'll get on to that. Um, but technically in 1999 by four founders. And since its launch, there have been over 30 billion Shazams, um, which have been recorded. And as the app has had over 1 billion downloads. So they now have over 100 million monthly active users. And they just got sold reportedly to Apple for $400 million about two months ago. And we can briefly touch on that. Diraj did turn up in a Lamborghini. In fact, he had a spare one with him um, just for Lies. fun. <laughs> Um, and um, there's also rumoured reports that he's buying the curtain because he just feels frivolous tonight, um, which is great. Um, and he plans to um, donate all the goods of those proceedings back to Calcutta, where he comes from. Um, his grandfather, interestingly, was the commander-in-chief of the Indian Navy, which um, would suggest that you had a potentially strict upbringing um, but again, we can uh, we can come on to that. And in his own words, my mum and dad are really musically talented and I don't have a single musical bone in my body, <laughs> says the founder of Shazam. Um, so I wanted to pick up on that because it's ridiculous. But this deficiency is obviously part of the unique circumstance that led you to wondering what the hell every single song you didn't know and couldn't remember was. Okay. So your journey um, sort of starts in 1999, I believe. But um, can we go back to um, Calcutta, you've got this um, grandfather who is uh, in this uh, incredibly unusual position. Um, what was that like having someone like that, you know, the leader of the Indian Navy as your grandpa? Did he tell you off all the time or was he quite soft and nice on you? Uh, I assume this is off the record. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, okay, the camera yeah. there, the mics, everything is off the record. Say right. what you like. So my grandfather Talk about the acquisition was to actually, Google. he was a, a huge inspiration in my life because he taught me so much. I knew him as... Uh, a grandparent, not as a military officer. And one of the things he said to me was, if you put your mind to something, you can make it happen. And that really stayed with me. Um, he said other things as well. Uh, when you're in the Navy, for instance, you're often waiting for uh, a boat. You might be waiting for a couple of hours. Uh, I didn't pay much attention to that. But uh, having started Shazam 18 years ago, we waited an awful long time. So I realized he was right about that as well. Okay, and can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, entrepreneurship back in India? I mean, you, you, um, were you surrounded by like, lots of entrepreneurial figures or was it just not like that? No, not really. My, my dad actually worked for Air India, so I moved around a lot when I was growing up. So I lived in Greece, in uh, France, in Switzerland, uh, in Singapore, in, in Japan. So I had a very kind of odd and mixed upbringing. But I wouldn't say I was around entrepreneurs and didn't show any 
particular entrepreneurial instinct, uh, unlike my younger brother, who uh, isn't actually an entrepreneur in the education space and would rent out his bicycle for marbles when he was about seven years old. So he was much more entrepreneurial than I am. Fair enough. He's probably in a school somewhere saying, but my bastard older brother <laughs> went and did Shazam, um, which you must be a fairly irritating older brother to have in that respect. Um, OK, take us to um, 1995 when you were hanging out with your then soon to be co-founder in London. Is that right? Yes. So um, I guess the uh, the question is, when did I start thinking about becoming an entrepreneur? And it just happened that I was at Stanford Business School from 95 to 97, just when the internet was starting up. And I thought, here's a bandwagon going right by my front door. I may as well just jump on it like everyone else. So I, I, I didn't know a thing about technology. Um, but neither did anyone else at that time. Uh, well, uh, oh, yes, on, on the plus side. But I thought, I, I'd love to be an entrepreneur. So luckily, uh, some of my drinking buddies felt exactly the same way. So we would just, you know, go down to the pub, like try to brainstorm ideas, like become like proper entrepreneurs. It didn't work too well because we didn't have any good ideas. So it, it, it was a rocky start, but uh, that's how it all, all began. How does one come up with the idea of Shazam? Obviously, um, it's one of those things that once you've heard it, you wish you were the person who invented it. It seems so obvious. Did you guys sit around, like, you know, brainstorming ideas? You're at Stanford University. It's this, like, archetypal startup school where all the greatest companies have started in technology. Yes. Um, and you guys are, what, coming up with harebrained schemes every week, deciding what to pick? Or hey, Look, I, I'm going to give away my trade secrets right here, right now. So... The secret of our success was that we knew nothing about music. So whenever we heard songs, we'd be like, what is that? Like, I don't know. You tell me. And, um, and that's how we came up with the idea for Shazam. It was actually, I, I blame my business partner because I'm hopeless, but he's even worse. And um, he would hear the most popular songs and go, I have no clue. I'd love to find out. How would I find out? What if I could use my mobile phone to identify music? And I mean, I've heard many of his harebrained schemes, but this was one of the the most sort of audacious. So, Can you give uh, us an idea of one that was almost as bad? So you would almost be sitting here talking about how you had a billion downloads for? If this was on the record, I'd be much more charitable. But um, <laughs> for instance, uh, one of the ideas was if you're on a website and there was a celebrity, then you could get in touch with them and like contact them. And a mutual friend of ours called it e-stalkers, you know, so could have been huge, but who knows? Okay, so just so you know where a lot of crazy ideas come from, literally crazy people with bad ideas. So that's encouraging at the very least for everyone. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so um, how did you make this happen? So um, who, who were the main people involved? Um, take us through the journey, like what on earth actually happened to even get to the first prototype of this crazy idea? Sure. So my, uh, my business partner, Chris, who came up with the idea for Shazam, he had a secret weapon. And his secret weapon is called Philippe, who's a classmate of his at Berkeley Business School. Now, I'd never met Philippe, but Chris uh, told me that he was like superpowers. You know, he was just incredible. And it turns out it's true. But um, three MBAs is not a great starting point for a technology business. So we knew we needed someone smart for the team. And... Um, the problem is we didn't really know what field of technology this music identification thing was meant to be. We found out it was digital signal processing, uh, which is a mouthful for the three of us. But the experts 
in this domain happened to be at Stanford and Berkeley, which is where they were doing their MBA. So they were in the right place at the right time to have conversations with incredibly smart uh, engineers and scientists who uh, helped us to invent this thing. And you say invent this thing. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, there's a man somewhere in a basement in Stanford at some point that you came into contact with that invented this whole concept by the name of Avery Wang. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Chris and Philippe spoke to the head of the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford University and put him on the spot and said, who are the smartest PhD students that you've worked with in your 25 years? And he obligingly gave them a list. And the top person on that list was Dr. Avery Wang. So they contacted him and said, would you like to join our startup? So he just hit delete because, you know, you get random emails from wannabe entrepreneurs. So they just kept pestering him until he said, fine, let's, let's meet up. And they took him through the idea. Uh, not quite sure how they twisted his arm to join, but he said, fine, fine, I'll uh, join you guys. And he did. And that's how we got some talent on the team to actually invent the technology. Okay, so it, by this point, it's 1999, the four of you have formed Shazam. Who came up with the name, by the way? So uh, by now it's 2000, okay. and the internet bubble is going great guns. You know, we are super excited, you know. Uh, overnight success beckons. Um, the name Shazam was actually a placeholder name. It didn't have any meaning. It was just a, a code name for our future business. And um, we tried very hard to then come up with a better name, uh, but we failed, so we ended up staying with Shazam. But uh, back then, the idea was you hear a song, you go, what is that? You take your phone out, and you'd want to call that number as quickly as possible. So, Do you remember what the original number was? Uh, well, we didn't have the number th back then, but it was like the name we came up with was Aardvark with two A's. You could hit that, and it would dial the number and um, capture that song. And then if you look at Aardvox, we research Aardvox on the internet. They just do not make for good logos at all. So we gave up. <laughs> um, okay, so it's now 2000. Yes. You guys um, started this company in Stanford. Um, you've left Avery Wang there in his basement, focusing on this basically incredibly unique computer science mathematical problem. Um, and the three of you are now back in London? So, uh, so uh, that's right. So Chris, Philippe, and myself were, had set up shop in London. We set up the business here. We did things that all good MBAs do. We wrote a business plan. We created an incredibly complicated Excel spreadsheet. We started like knocking on angel investors' doors. And we, we asked uh, Avery to please create this groundbreaking uh, technology in three months. And uh, yes, as uh, you said, uh, he descended into his basement trying his best to keep us happy. Um, now, because none of us knew anything about digital signal processing, we didn't realize it was an impossible task. So about two months, three weeks, and four days into it, Avery realized he was on the brink of failure. And he was about to give up. He was about to say to us, look, I just can't do it. Um, but then, amazingly, he had a breakthrough insight in a cafe in Palo Alto I'm not sure if he sent like, aha, Eureka, whatever it was, but he cracked the code and developed the uh, original demo for Shazam, which then allowed us to go to investors and, and you know, start raising the money to get the business off the ground. 
And, um, you know, what, what was your funding history? You raised a million dollars at first or a million pounds and then... Yes, yeah, so we started off, our seed round was a million dollars raised here in London in the summer of 2000, which I've fond memories for because uh, the internet bubble was still holding up just about. Um, and you have a really unique angel investor as well, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so we had a number of really interesting angels. One of them was uh, Brent Townsend, who's the inventor of the 56K modem, who's been an incredible supporter for the business, you know, uh, since day one, pretty much. Um, and then we raised a venture capital round of £5.3 million, $8.5 million in the summer of 2001, uh, which was not such a good time to be raising funding um, when there was just just a startups, you know, lying dead on the streets, unfortunately. So, I mean, you're like clearly extremely unique to have been raising money at the time when everyone was shutting technology startups down. Um, do you remember what your pitch was at the time? Do you remember, has, has it changed? Like, do you, you know, do you feel like it's still very cool? Like you went in there and this is what we do and this is how we do it. And you could still sort of say the same today. Yeah, I think very sensibly uh, about 49 of the VCs in London turned us down. And there was only one uh, who was willing to stick his neck out and, and uh, bet on us. Um, and then two others who followed suit, one from, uh, from Belgium. And I say that advisedly because I've spoken to our first chairman, RJ Chaudhary of IDG Ventures. And he admits that, you know, sometimes you just have to have this belief, this dream in a team without a proven technology, without... Uh, you know, the, the components of the business. And um, he's been proven not right because I think over and over again, it's the ones who seem mad in the beginning who um, come up with things which, uh, you know, wouldn't have been otherwise. So honestly, I am so grateful to, for the people who backed us. But uh, those were not great times when you've been turned down for the 48th time in a row. Then uh, one has to pick oneself up and keep going. And you know, you take this money in, um, say, five and a half million pounds, you say. Um, how, how long was the gap between then and getting to market? So it took us 13 months from our Series A venture capital round to get to market. Right. And in that time, we had to uh, scale up the technology, do deals with all the mobile operators so we could have the same number across each of them. Uh, we had to create a catalog of fingerprints, which is what Shazam uses to identify music, um, and have all the services so that we could, uh, you know, ha have a, a running operation uh, when it came to launch. So it was, a, it was a big project just to get to launch. Like, one of the things that I think is, um, you know, just as a kid growing up with Shazam and then on and on, um, that question of just how the hell did they put this stuff on there in the first place, right? And now, obviously, um, you probably don't want to admit that it was all just done on Napster and illegally done. So how did you legally get those songs onto your system? Like, there was no, there was no MP3, really. I mean, as CDs. Yes, that's right. And uh, unfortunately, because we knew nothing about the music industry, we foolishly assumed that the, all the digital music would be available, which is not true. So what we ended up doing was a partnership with a distributor of music in the UK who had a warehouse stuffed with every single CD sold in this country. And the deal which, which Philippe struck basically was to create the Shazam fingerprints from this music, not make a copy of the music, um, uh, so there's no infringement of, of the law whatsoever, 
Um, and we would create all the metadata, the name of the song and the artist and the album, which is what we needed for the consumer. And all of that was done. We burned through our 5.3 million by hiring something like 50 or 60 temp workers who came in and did like, you know, shifts. It started off with one shift, then we went to two. Uh, by the end, we were running three shifts overseen by an amazing uh, U.S. Marine called Bart, who ran this operation, as you'd expect, uh, just to get to, to launch. So actually, the uh, crazy vision you have in your head of yeah. how did they do this? They literally just have a warehouse like full of basically temp workers working 24-7, yeah. burning CDs, and yeah. that's literally what happened. Yeah, I mean, vision is a kind word. You, you must be hallucinating is what we heard Potentially, more often. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've got uh, now a million songs tracked roughly at this point. Uh, yes, you burn through about five point three million pounds doing yeah. it, but suddenly you can get to market, you can reach consumers. Except you sort of have that same problem that Blipper probably came up with originally, which is this doesn't exist. Yeah. So how on earth do you get adoption? Um, take us through your early marketing meetings. What were they like? You know, there how were no apps then were there? Were there no, apps? this is uh, this there is long no before there were no smartphones. Were, this was yeah. Web. Yeah, so the phones were as, as dumb as a box of rocks. I mean, there was nothing smart about them whatsoever. No, we did. Um, uh, we tried various marketing gimmicks. So there was, um, I remember vividly, DJ Magazine had a music event. So we bought a table and crashed it and um, uh, basically uh, plastered the toilets with uh, Shazam stickers, which had no impact on usage whatsoever. <laughs> but um, it was, it was a, a fun experiment. Um, but then we sort of tried to grow up and, and hire like proper marketeers. So our uh, uh, director of marketing was uh, Vijay Solanki, who was previously with um, Enemy Magazine, Capital Radio. And he said, look, boys, let me show you how it's done. And we booked uh, ads on the radio where the Shazam ad was the last ad before the music came back on. And it would say, do you ever hear a song and you don't know what it is? You can dial this number 2580 straight down the middle of your mobile, hold your mobile up to the music, and you'll get an, a text message with the name of the song and the artist. Try it on the next song now. And then the, the music would come on. People would say, wait, what, what was that? And they would try it, and it would work, and they'd say, magic. Mm. Literally how the word Shazam was, was become synonymous for. Um, and I guess precursor to wanting to blip was wanting to Shazam. So uh, I think a lot of people hold that um, unique tone and that unique statement um, of a company brand as an action, as a verb, et cetera, um, up today. Well, that came much later. Unfortunately, then people would say, oh, yes, what's that song? What was that number again? And they wouldn't remember. So, um, <laughs> so it was, it was uh, tough. Okay, not quite as magical. Correct. Okay, fine. So... Um, you know, coming on to the topic we were talking about earlier, which is um, I'm a founder, not a CEO. Um, I'm an early stage guy. I start things. I have ideas. Um, after you'd come up with a crazy idea, got your uh, merry band together to push it forward, um, maybe even released Avery from his basement. Who knows? He might still be there. We just we haven't asked. Yeah. Um, but it's just a gold-plated one now, obviously. <laughs> um, and uh, you've raised money. Yeah. You've done the ridiculous warehouse experiment and you've uh, got your product to market. Mm -hmm. You then leave the company. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your memories looking back on that time leaving the company? Um, you and your co-founders, how do you feel emotionally about it? 
Um, and do you still think about it? And do you think, you know, what it would have been like um, if you'd have stayed, how you'd have impacted it? Yes. I mean, one of our conditions of funding was that we would bring in a professional CEO. So we hired, so for instance, uh, our marketing director, uh, we hired a, a, a CEO. So we felt that our job as entrepreneurs running that first leg of the race was largely done. It was nice to have adults around the table as well and, uh, you know, cool heads and, uh, and so forth. But uh, no, I, I have no regrets whatsoever. I mean, in fairness, my co-founders and I, we've always shared a seat on the board as either a board member or, or observers. Uh, you know, I continue to be a, a shareholder. But um, I didn't miss the day-to-day -day dramas, let's put it that way, as well as when I left, I, I joined Save the Children. So I wanted to do something which gave back and made a difference to society. It was not just about being kind of... Um, focus 17 hours a day on, on building a business. But just to make sure that our viewers and listeners don't think you're too great a guy, you only lasted two years there before you went back into the corporate world, right? So uh, that is true. And I <laughs> too must much say, altruism. <laughs> I did miss the world of technology. I did miss, uh, you know, the commercial world. But um, I still feel that there's a, a middle ground. And, and I'm a big sort of supporter of social entrepreneurs, for instance, mm. who are trying to make an impact. But I like the entrepreneurial way of trying to make things happen. Um, but you're right. So since then, I've worked in innovation, typically new technologies. Um, and uh, uh, I enjoy uh, the near future, I guess. What do you think about the topic of, um, you know, of social entrepreneurialism in general? Do you think there's just not enough good quality entrepreneurs? You know, it tends to be um, I guess because of media and society, if you are truly entrepreneurially spirited and a real like hacky hustler, um, you'll go and build a business for profit in the technology sector quite often when actually, you know, there's so many smart applications for those minds in, you know, social causes. Mm -hmm. Do you think that sector misses out a lot? Do you think there's something that we could do to encourage more um, creative entrepreneurs into that sector? You know, I'm not sure. So my my younger brother, for instance, he um, is he started the executive education program at the University of Peace in Costa Rica, and he works with young people who want to put their passion towards having an impact through uh, uh, social enterprises which they create. And there's a fabulous talent pool out there. I think just like if you're a first time founder, it really to your benefit to learn from other people's experiences and have that community who can share their 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 knowledge and uh, and their experience as well um so uh and i think more and more particularly for young people just trying to set up a business is not good enough it's something about making a real difference having an impact so no i'm optimistic okay so we touched with um jess on the subject of equality mm -hmm. um I guess, you know, we don't get to talk about um, your perspective growing up as a female entrepreneur so much. But, um, you know, certainly as an Indian entrepreneur, um, it's an interesting time in the world at the moment. Uh, most of the best and biggest companies in the world are being run by Indians. Mm -hmm. What do you think that's about? It's a really interesting time. You've got Microsoft and Google. And, you know, just the list goes on. Yes. Um, is there something really special about um, growing up in India that causes that? You know, uh, you know controversially, I, 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 I don't promote uh, uh, Indian males in management, but I think they're doing just fine as they are. But I'm a big supporter of women in technology. I do a fair amount of sort of like mentorship and advising, trying to um, help women who choose this career path, although 
as you pointed out, uh, you know, if you're doomed to failure, then maybe I should be changing tack. But um, I, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, I feel like I have the benefit of Indian culture and um, respecting others and wanting to do something to, to give back, but also the benefit of having lived in Europe, being educated in the US. So I think there's a, a group of people who uh, can connect with lots of different cultures and, and ways of doing things. And that's the, the group I probably feel most part of. Okay. And um, you've also got a family. You've got three kids. That's right. Um, presumably you have one favorite as well. Is yours called Joe? Uh, no. So, uh, so my oldest is called Tanya and she has just won an art scholarship. So she's super talented. My, she's your favorite at the moment. Uh, she's my, no, my, my, my second <laughs> one is called favorite. Max is into heavy metal. So I'm now going to watch like, you know, like heavy metal bands, which is great. Um, my little one, uh, Jeremy, who's five years old, uh, runs circles around me. So it keeps me fit. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a good thing. Okay. And um, I guess in your journey as, um, you know, one of the founders of Shazam, you probably come up against uh, some pretty cool people. Um, it might have been said in passing, like that guy founded Shazam. So, does that ever happen? You hear this like whisper going around? Um, and how, what's been like the biggest sort of um, celebrity moment in that sense? Yeah, I, so I, um, I when at, at this uh, DJ Magazine event, um, there was a DJ called DJ Lottie. And um, I bumped into her at a club in Miami at the Winter Music Festival. And I went up to her and I said, just, just having a chat, trying to break into the music industry. And I said, I think for the first time in my life, because no one had ever heard of Shazam back in 2002, 2003, I said, you know, I started this company and you can identify music using your mobile phone. She said, Shazam. I said, yes. She said, I tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I stopped. <laughs> Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> that is a dead end question. But if I'm not mistaken, I have uh, I've seen a photo with you before with Jamie Foxx. So I guess it can't all be um, those kind of moments. How did that one come about? Yes. So, so my wife, Rachel, who uh, is an incredibly busy mum looking after the three kids, um, she found out that uh, Jamie Foxx was hosting a show called Beat Shazam. And it's all about teams competing to name that song as quickly as possible. And the winning team has five goes, and if they get the song right each time, they can win a million dollars. So in order to lend our support to the show, we jumped on a plane from London, flew to Los Angeles, rented the, you know, obligatory sort of like convertible, um, drove around like Hollywood, went to the taping of the show, met Jamie Foxx. My wife got a selfie with him. Uh, all her friends heard about it. I was incredibly proud that we made it to LA and back in time on Friday to pick up the kids from school. So that was a great escape. I highly recommend it to anyone who's got small kids. And is the real reason that you rushed off so fast because you didn't want your wife spending enough time with Jamie Foxx? Uh, you know, it, since this is off the record, yeah, um, oh, yes, big time. I was worried. He is a very funny and very charming guy. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to leave anyone that I know near him either. Um, okay, so on your... <laughs> Came out wonderfully. <laughs> Keeping it on the record is fine. Um, no editing required. Um, okay, so going back to, um, you know, your disposition is, um, as I've come to understand it, very sunny side up, lots of positives. Um, and no matter how hard I press you on the issue, uh, you don't really seem like the type of person to have too many regrets in your life at all or hard moments, which then obviously 
makes it harder to drill down into some of the valuable lessons that uh, people can value from entrepreneurship. But you once mentioned to me um, an experience you had and actually just touched on it, you know, the emotional side of being an entrepreneur um, when you have to handle and manage other people. Um, so can you share some of your experiences there, some of the, the tougher times or difficult moments? Yeah, I think uh, I was fortunate because I was with a really good bunch of people, people who were, you know, entrepreneurs long before it was fashionable. But the reality is after we launched, having, uh, you know, burned through 5.3 million pounds, um, if you're trying to grow a business, it's helpful to have a viable business model, which we didn't. So um, we were just hemorrhaging cash. And frankly, we could have gone bankrupt any time. It was just sheer luck and, you know, stubborn stupidity, which got us through uh, to this point. But um, we had to let people go along the way, people who were my close friends, people who had, you know, spent night and day working side by side with the core team to get the product to where it needed to be. And to have those conversations was incredibly painful, you know, and to have people come up and, and say, um, a, a friend's flatmate came up to me in the pub and said, how could, you, how could you do that, you know? Like, who do you think you are? And I was like, do you know how, how painful it is to let people go who you have personally hired and gone through those intense experiences with? So that was no fun at all. Um, people ended up landing, landing on their feet, but I don't want to make it sound for a second that it's a bed of roses. And I have tremendous em empathy for any founder because I know exactly how it feels that gut-churning experience when you don't know if you're going to be around in business next week or not. So talking about being around in business next week or not, um, a couple of months ago, um, it was spread all over the news that you had an acquisition um, by Apple yes. for a reported $400 million. Yeah. Um, and um, I wanted to get your comments on that. So I guess like a starting point, yeah. they're a famous company for acquiring nobody regularly. So yeah. it's quite unique to be acquired by Apple full stop. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, so it was reported in the press, but the EU is investigating from an uh, anti-competitive point of view. And so the transaction... Do you know what the deta Why? What's no, anti-competitive? It's, it's, uh, no, it's not. It's just, it's, it's fairly routine. It, uh, it was always going to be subject to regulatory approval. So that could take a few more months. We don't know yet. So it's brought out my finest entrepreneurial instincts, which is, you know, uh, make do until uh, the transaction actually closes. But in fairness, assuming it does, we'd be absolutely delighted because I think Apple really sets the standard as far as uh, delighting customers, uh, user experience, uh, belief in music, and we think it'll be a, a fantastic home for Shazam going forward. Mm. And one, like over one billion downloads. I mean, that must be one of the most downloaded apps of all time. Do you know what, what position you're in? Yeah, it's always been in the top 10, 15, 20, uh, you know, free apps. Mm. And there's always new apps which come out. But I think what's... What's crazy is that this is story is 18 years old. E even my kids have heard of Shazam, have used it. Their friends think it's cool. You know, that, that is a rare accomplishment, you know. For an old guy like me, uh, you know, that's incredibly um, a point of pride. So I, I hope that it continues from then, this starts a new chapter, uh, you know, under kind of Apple's eye. And what about the four of you? The four of you that started the company, you guys still friends? 
Well, we started off as drinking buddies, and we still are. So I met up with my co-founders in San Francisco a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, they've grown old and acquired their own collection of gray hair, just like me. But, yeah, it's great to be, you know, you can't make old friends, as they say. So it's a, it's a real pleasure. If, uh, and have you got room for Jamie Foxx in the gang? Do you think Jamie like, Foxx is welcome to hang out with us anytime. Can we just minute that? And Yeah, yeah, yeah for absolutely. The public record, yeah. As long as we edit my other comment, then <laughs> this can all go out. That's fine. <laughs> Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I gave a friend of mine who was doing some uh, SF selection, I gave him some capsules to just try these. He rang me and said, oh, it's not, it's not amazing. He said it was like thoughts had swallowed the grenade. And I thought, oh, that was a great name. As a really copycat industry, and a lot of the other weight loss products at the time had very generic, medicinal sounding names that you just wouldn't remember. I think that's a just, real definition of an entrepreneur, yeah, someone right. that's willing to sort of disrupt, not come in with a huge bank balance and actually make it work because they're hungry for it. That was husband and wife power couple Alan and Juliet Barrett of Grenade. We've never interviewed a couple before, but we thought it'd be great fun, and we were right. You'll hear how they spent years on product design before ever launching, but soon outsold Mars as one of the UK's top snack products, well on their way to becoming a billion-dollar company and a British smash hit success story. Tune in, or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.